Thanks for tuning in to this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. It's no surprise that a teacher's self-efficacy has a huge impact on their classroom teaching. But what aspects of work as a beginner teacher has an influence on how perceived self-efficacy develops? A research report has looked into this, and I'm joined in this episode of The Research Files by two of the paper's co-authors, Professor Helen Watt from the University of Sydney and Professor Paul Richardson from Monash University. They write in the report that little is known about the interrelationships of job resources and demands with teacher self-efficacy and consequences for teachers' professional behaviours. So to look further into this, they began a 15-year longitudinal study involving primary and secondary teachers. The participants were surveyed periodically on a range of issues, and while a lot of the data are yet to be analysed, some fascinating insights with implications for school communities have emerged. We're going to go through all of this in our discussion. To kick things off though, Paul and Helen share why they went ahead with this research. First you'll hear from Paul and then Helen. Let's jump in. I'm at Monash University and I'm a professor there in education. And why we started the research? Well, I was uh, running a program for many years when I was at a, a different campus of Monash and um, it took me a long time to realize that we were getting every year we were getting a large number of people who came from other careers who were leaving other much more prestigious careers um, coming into undertake teacher education i wondered after a while why would you leave being an accountant or being a medical doctor or another career where you were actually earning quite a lot more money and you had a great deal more status and yet people were signing up um, to, to undertake a degree program that was going to take them at least two years. So I started asking myself, why does anyone want to do that? And then secondly, why do people actually want to be teachers? Do we really, really know? And when I searched around, everyone was terribly sure that you basically needed to love children and that you, um, you wanted to be, you know, working with them. And yet it didn't seem like a very satisfying suggestion at the time as to exactly why people would, would have such a, a complex, uh, take on a complex job with such small amounts of um, motivation, if you like, uh, that it seemed to be. Um, so uh, when Helen and I started looking at this, I was searching around, having done a very small pilot study, and uh, she came along and said, well, I think what you need is a motivational theory. And... Uh, I think um, she can probably tell the story after that, really. Yeah, I didn't come so much um, out of teacher education and um, teaching about pedagogy uh, so much to future teachers. I identify as a motivation researcher and I'm very interested in how young people make their future choices. And uh, this seemed to me to be another choice problem. Um, Why choose the teaching career? And the... um, Motivational theories also talk a lot about not just, you know, the choice to enter something, but how the reasons why you choose it affect what you do once you're there. So we were very interested 
not only to understand who chooses teaching and why, which is probably what the Fit Choice program has been most famous for, um, but now, you know, we wanted to keep following all these people to see how their development played out, depending on what different kinds of school settings they were in, uh, who would stay, who would leave, and out of those who stay, because we don't think only persistence is the issue, um, who would thrive and flourish or suffer and burn out, because um, we want, you know, healthy, well teachers, uh, not just people s stuck in the job. Rebecca Lazaridis uh, did um, some postdoctoral um, research time with me when I was at Monash as well. And uh, yeah, so she became interested in this and has, has become a colleague and collaborator over the years. She's become, like me, her trajectory was very much being interested in students and youth and their choices and coming a bit later to such a strong interest in teachers. Obviously, teachers are a hugely important formative influence on students and youth, but actually a lot of the um, educational psychology motivation research ha hadn't been so interested in teachers themselves, more just in them as instruments of providing <laughs> pedagogy to students. And we realised that this was really a gap to understand what are they trying to achieve and how does it matter. And so you followed the participants in your study for 15 years. Why was it important to follow them for that long? And who exactly were your participants? Well, we started out with um, six universities over a number of years, uh, 2001 or two. Two and three and then six. Uh, but our, our total participants over that time were about 2,007 people. We didn't necessarily think we would follow them at the beginning, but it it became apparent after we were funded for the first um, study by the um, uh, Australian Research Council. We then were able to get another grant and we thought, well, we just didn't get the grant offhandedly. It, it came as a result of thinking, well, what comes next? We've, we've followed them through their degree. They're now in their early career. And at that time, and it it's remains the case, many, many people say uh, in the literature oh, anywhere between 25 and 50% of beginning teachers leave. Well, we don't have any evidence for that in, in Australia. All of the evidence is very, 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 very poorly done. And Paul Weldon from the ACR really has uh, written about that and, and done an analysis of some of those claims and, and I think has done a wonderful job in saying the shameful thing is that we actually don't know what the answer is. Um, because the states necessarily don't share that data, um, may even not have the data themselves to know that that you know what the attrition rates are. So we thought, oh well, let's follow people uh, into their early career. Then we thought, well, we should keep following them. They were hugely invested um, in a longitudinal study, maintaining the participants, the same people over and over and over again, is a really tough job, and. Um, but they were hugely generous and really involved in the study and remain so. We should probably say something about the um, retention rates. Um, so of the initial 2007 of them, that included secondary, primary and early childhood. Um, but early childhood uh, educators go into a range of settings outside schools. And so we have continued to follow them, but we've sort of invested most of our efforts in understanding the trajectories of the primary and secondary teachers. So at early career, which was up to seven years teaching, people still answered different online survey pathways if they'd quit or qualified and never taught or never qualified. Um, so we calculated very conservative response rates 
out of um, people who had completed their teaching qualification but didn't identify as quit or never taught, which was 42% of the initial primary teachers and 46% of the secondary. And at mid-career, which is up to 15 years teaching, the retention similarly conservatively calculated was 42% for primary and 40% for secondary. So they're very conservative figures because it's very possible that people who weren't responding to us to tell us what was happening were people who'd quit. So yeah, it's actually quite um, good retention over such a long time frame. Yeah, absolutely. And so can you talk me through the methods that you use to gather evidence from the participants over time and really get a picture of their self-efficacy and their work-related demands? How did you do that? Well, we've had four waves of questionnaires and and surveys that people have done. We've also done a range of uh, interviews in initial career, a very large number of about 170 interviews with people, different people in their initial Teacher, uh, teacher training, oh, sorry, their teacher uh, placement where they've been as a teacher. And then we've done a, a group of those people we've interviewed a second time who've been out for uh, the long period of time. So we have those. We've also, also been able to do um, observations of, of teachers and also get from those uh, teachers' students um, some survey around the types of teaching that the, t- the teachers are doing. Um, so it's been a long-term project and we have a lot of data that uh, we still have to um, analyse as a result of all that. We actually have a parallel US study because uh, we were working over there for a while and we thought, oh, it'd be a shame to miss this opportunity. Let's go over the findings then of what you have looked at so far. Can you give me an overview of what those findings are? Sure. Um, The two most core findings were that um, teachers who started out their career with a positive uh, classroom management approach, um, so this was in terms of providing clear expectations and structure um, and uh, establishing caring relationships with students, those teachers had this positive classroom management structure derailed between their early and mid-career if they suffered excessive demands during their early career. So that's the first very core finding. The second very core finding is that teachers' self-efficacy, their sense of confidence that they're equipped with the skills and abilities to effectively manage and and run a classroom. It was very stable right from the end of their teacher education through their early career into their into their mid-career. From the start of their teaching, so from the end of their teacher education until their early career, there was a positive impact which has been often assumed in correlational studies but we have really long-term longitudinal data to really test this out there was a positive effect of having higher self-efficacy on this positive classroom management style in early career. And from early career to mid-career, there was only the same positive effect of self-efficacy to positive classroom management if they were not experiencing excessive demands. So the experience of early career excessive demands, tends it seems that it really derails people who are... Um, engaging in positive practice, feel efficacious and confident, um, but it derails their positive uh, behaviour and also prevents the uh, stimulating effect 
of their perceived skills and abilities on their practice. Uh, and instead they trended to a more um, negative uh, classroom management style, which included pretty negative things, such as the use of sarcasm, yelling at students and deliberately embarrassing them. So that's obviously not a classroom management method that we would hope that teachers would adopt. And so in terms of a teacher's self-efficacy and how that's established, I saw in your research that you found that it's established very early on in your career. And obviously the advantage of your longitudinal study shows that that remains quite stable, as you just mentioned. So I'm thinking then for all the school leaders listening to this podcast, that could have a huge relevance to them. So is there any message that could be sent to school leaders across the country? I think that just because something doesn't tend to change on its own is not to say that it couldn't be changed with efforts. Mm. Um, But that said, I don't think the issue is teachers' sense of skills and abilities and confidence. I think the issue is these early career uh, excessive demands stifling um, the good behaviours that they would otherwise be able to enact. And I think in in early career, teachers are faced with... Um, like any new person in any new workplace, faced with a large number of tasks. And when you're beginning in any new job, the tasks in teaching, for instance, are not just in the classroom. They're also in establishing yourself with your colleagues, establishing yourself with the principal, with the leadership in the school, um, finding ways of uh, also managing your registration requirements that you're facing, And some schools uh, do appear, I mean, appear to give support to to teachers, but we've done lots of interviews and people often complain that they're getting no support to actually meet all of those requirements. So I think it's, they're often very overwhelmed and where the schools know that, they do tend to try and put in place effective uh, supports. This is only a a snippet of... um... All the, all the things we've looked at. And my, my heart is very much in the sort of motivation part of it. Um, and what, we, what we're really finding at a sort of a broader level is that the kinds of um, very positive reasons why people have gone into teaching, that they actually feel that a lot of these demands in their early career are taking them away from what they regard to be their core business. So a lot of administrative and bureaucratic compliance paperwork and continual accreditations and reaccreditations when the main reasons that they're there they tell us is um, because they enjoy teaching uh, because they want to make a social difference they want to work with young people um, Mm. they want to enhance social equity and because they've had positive um, role model examples of um, you know the, the good that teachers can do in young people's lives themselves and they enjoy the interaction with kids like as a as a, a important um, quality in the in the work that they want to do they're actually finding that that's an enjoyable aspect of their work um, otherwise I guess they wouldn't 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 be there So another point that I wanted to pick up on was the fact that you mentioned that early career mentoring emerged to be quite an important factor in improving the self-efficacy of the teachers involved in this study. So can you talk me through the data that you collected on mentoring? We asked them about whether they had a mentor or a mentoring program and the results were not encouraging in many ways. I mean, when we look at the mean for that, it was really just on the midpoint of the scale which tends to suggest that it was not terrifically supportive, that 
what they were experiencing. And I think the experience of not having an effective mentor has, has meant that it becomes part of the excessive demands if you can't find out ways of getting around some of these things. So often, you know, they didn't have a reduced workload, for instance, as it's often been recommended in, in the literature. Some, some did, but a lot didn't. And the quality of the mentoring program, we weren't able to identify uh, from the questions we asked them. So I think... Um, but it is very likely if you're a beginning teacher and you are experiencing a lot of overload, initial overload, and you don't have someone you can go to and get some sage advice from and also stand back and look at uh, ways in which you might actually deal with some of these issues, then I think you must feel pretty much on your own. So they responded about the extent to which they agreed that uh, there was an effective mentoring program at their school and that they personally had experienced effective mentoring. So it was a five point, strongly disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, strongly agree. The mean is at neutral, which isn't super encouraging. Um, <laughs> but um, we did find a um, protective effect only in early career where there was a positive association between agreeing more about mentoring and um, self-efficacy. But it didn't seem to have an enduring effect on into mid-career. And it's quite interesting, we seem to be finding a bit of a pattern that it's much easier to harm people than to help them. So, you know, like the, ex um, you know, principal pressure and excessive demands and these kinds of things really do damage, whereas the kind of support things seem to have weaker and not enduring positive effects. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'm also interested then if you're able to comment on any implications this study has for teachers themselves. I think if the character of um, teachers' work, you know, if uh, policy bodies and if they decide that teachers' work should be something different than it has been, then it's pretty important for uh, potential teachers to make an informed choice uh, if that's the kind of work that they want to do. So selection is something. Um, Paul was talking about that they wouldn't uh, still be there if they weren't finding some satisfaction. But some people, um, it can become a sunken cost, especially, you know, with a mortgage and maybe children, maybe being a single parent, who knows. Um, it might be supremely difficult to take time out from earning an income to retrain and change career tracks. Mm. So I think it's pretty important to be you know, upfront about what teachers' work is supposed to be these days. That said, um, I don't think everything is just, you know, outside in and um, the teachers are sort of helpless um, victims of external forces. Um, we've also been looking at uh, different kinds of coping strategies adopted by teachers and uh, there's actually a lot that we can learn from the preparation of future um, school psychologists, other kinds of psychologists, school counsellors, in terms of self-care and boundary setting and um, having clear demarcation between work and home and referring on so not feeling that everything is your responsibility, particularly home problems. Actually, teachers may not be uh, equipped or qualified um, or, or competent to address some of these issues, which can be terribly stressful for them to try and take on when they care about the students and 
want to help them. So yeah, I think we can learn, I think there are lessons in self-care, which I do not think are PD days when someone comes in and you do yoga. And it's not making people do mindfulness programs online. So I don't think we're looking for silver bullets here, but I think that there are ways that teachers can um, try and um, restore and refresh outside work, create boundaries between personal and professional life. Yes, but I, I really feel that there's a responsibility of the system and employers to, you know, like if they really think this is the way the profession should go, to, to say what being a teacher really entails. I think one of the things that uh, teachers do often say is that they feel that a great deal of their professional autonomy is undermined by uh, requirements to record information, provide information, provide reports. Um, and they don't necessarily understand what it's going to be used for. They also object oftentimes to the idea that it's not going to help them in their teaching. Um, and that they, you know, by the time they get the reports back from a lot of these uh, data collection processes um, that, are, that are going on often in, across the systems, um, that, you know, the class has gone or they've moved on to the following year. And, I mean, I think teachers as professionals are wanting to do something that is extremely important in meeting the needs of the students. Now, that may seem very idealistic, but I think at the base, that's what people are trying to do. And the moment... Um, things become externally motivated all the time, I think you can lose a great deal of the motivation to, to um, you know, to contribute. And we do see teachers um, continuing on when they're being put under, uh, I think, a great deal of pressure by uh, changes within the system, changes in the way in which they've got to report, changes in the way in which their professional standing is being measured, uh, the incursion of metrics, um, I think those things are, are, are having a, a powerful effect. I'm just thinking of um, one striking finding that, uh, not this paper, something else. Um, when we were asking teachers, uh, it was in their early career, about their perceived goals achievement, so to what extent do you feel able to achieve those things that are really important to you as a teacher, the uh, supports that they expressed, rated, uh, in helping them to achieve their goals were personal uh, qualities and less so, much less so, um, things to do with uh, school supports. And this was reversed when we asked them to think about very core goals that they felt unable to achieve and to rate about supports and barriers. And it was uh, far less anything to do with, you know, lack of skills, abilities, motivation, whatever, and far more to do with... Um, obstructions um, in their school context. I really think the, the real importance of this study uh, is showing the in, that it's an investment to make sure that teachers are set up and start out well. Because, you know, look at the cost years mm. down the track. So to, um, you know, ha have a reduced workload seems an obvious thing. Uh, and for early career teachers, but why not all teachers, a lot of the administrivia, couldn't it be dealt with by administrative or professional staff? So I think, you know, teachers are, in general, our work has shown teachers are committed, motivated, skilled individuals, and uh, we should let them get on with it. Obviously, this research has displayed some really useful data so far. So is there anything next for this body of research? Anything that you'll be interested in looking a bit closer at? Something, something that we're very interested in right now 
is for teachers who are um, burnt out, uh, is, is there a way to recover? You know, can you come back from that? Um, and let me try, and it was actually um, supportive leadership. Uh, so supportive leadership actually um, was a predictor of people mo moving from a burnout profile to actually an ambitious profile. So the profiles were located along two dimensions of striving uh, and well-being. So the group that was kind of high, high, high striving, high well-being, that was the ambitious. Um, the high striving but low well-being was the burnout. So actually that move from burnout to ambitious, uh, the change is in their well-being. The striving stays the same. And we were interested in the, you know, the four different types and the different kinds of levers that could move people from one to another. The sparing type, which is uh, people with um, fine well-being but very low striving, um, they actually also um, became ambitious um, with supportive leadership. So, yeah, so it's not, it's not all a bad story. There is stuff that uh, leaders can do. And I think one of the things that uh, we, we will obviously be looking at, and we've got a lot of interviews that we want to look at as well, what, what sustains healthy, uh, effective teachers, or at least sustains them in, in that way within the job after a long period of time, um, I think we're starting to, to look at, and context seems to be incredibly important. You can find yourself as a teacher, and we've interviewed people who were talking about if they'd stayed in the previous school, they would have left. Now they're in a, a context where the principal and the school leadership have a great deal of, um, they, don't, they don't have no rules and regulations or no external controls, but the teachers talk a lot about being able to have achieve their goals, achieve the vision they have for what they want to be able to do, and to be able to, to, um, to teach well in the classroom uh, without feeling that they're being surveilled or being, um, you know, getting principal performance pressure all the time to do better and do better. So I think it's a, it's a balance between external controls and, and you know, the top down and the bottom up um, that we're really interested in at the moment. And it does seem that if certain contexts are, you know, characterised by leadership and by the principal um, do seem to make a huge different to, difference to what keeps people in the job. Things like authentic consultation with staff and participatory decision making. The a lip service approach to it is actually just going to add another time strain for teachers because they're having to attend these, you know, so-called consultation meetings where nothing they say is going to make a difference and it's just using time where they need to be getting on with their busy work. Just in case any of our wonderful participants are listening. You know, we could never do this without you and thank you so much. And I think if we've learned anything from COVID, when things go bad, um, teacher autonomy and teacher competence uh, really does come to the fore. And you saw amazing displays, I think, from across the country of teachers who really did, um, did show that sort of level of ingenuity um, and commitment and really encourage a sort of sense of belonging in their schools, even though the schools weren't meeting. I know it, you know, there's the digital divide in there as well, but I, I think it's quite extraordinary what was, what was became apparent. That's all for this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about this topic, you can access the full transcript of this podcast with a link to the full report at our website, teachermagazine.com.
Considering there was quite a bit of discussion on the excessive demands placed on early career teachers, you might also be interested in episode 50 of The Research Files, where we look into results from a survey of principal health and wellbeing, which puts the spotlight on the demands placed on principals. To stay up to date with our Research Files series, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud, so you can be notified of any new episodes.